Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm not going to be taking calls in this hour. I'm still working through a very small technical problem that, uh, you know, the the broadcast is going fine. But, uh, of course, we record every broadcast for podcast at a later time. And if I have if you call in, I cannot record the phone call. It's it's a complicated thing. I'm not even going to try to explain it. But essentially, uh, you would just hear me going, "Uh uh-huh. Oh, yes. Good point. (laughs) I can't say that. I can't say that I would say it that way, but oh, thank you so much. Anyway, it's a one sided conversation should be fixed sometime later this morning. But uh, I do appreciate you listening. So do know I I have uh, undying gratitude for you being a part of the program. So. So I was out and about last week. You know what I saw? Lots and lots of school buses. Doing their thing. And it is it is definitely back to school. I believe it's a week from today. My kids are all back in school. Well, my two kids are back in school. I actually have a son who's headed off to college, and we're, we're going to be talking a little bit about the, uh, the, the textbook market. What a racket that is. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. But in the meantime, when it comes to back to school, I know this is something that's looked at with both a sense of anticipation as well as a sense of dread. Depends on whether you're a parent or a teacher or a kid, but uh, here it is. Summer is just about gone. I know we're just a third of the way through the month of August, but here we are. And it's for, for most purposes, it's done. Stick a fork in it. Carrie McDonald writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, where she is their senior education fellow, has a great article about questioning the back to school default. Now, it might be a little bit late. You've got a week here to question that default. But listen to some of the points that she has to make here. She says, back to school time is upon us, and my Instagram feed is starting to fill with those first day photos as a new school year begins this week in some parts of the country. Now, she says, for those of us who homeschool, we often get asked, so why did you decide to homeschool? Now, we respond with various personal and educational reasons, including the top motivator for homeschoolers on national surveys, concern about the school environment. But she says, what always strikes me, though, is that parents who send their kids to school never get asked this question. When was the last time someone asked a parent, so why did you decide to send your kid to to school? See what she did? She turned that around. Why did you decide to homeschool? Why did you decide to send your kid to school? Which brings us to the topic of societal expectations and defaults. And this might make you a little uncomfortable because you're going to realize there's a lot of us who apparently are just kind of, well, everybody else does. And I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be weird. Carrie McDonald says schooling is the default. It's the societally expected thing to do. And it's also mandated of parents under a legal threat of force. So they may not think much of it. 
The trouble is that schooling is beginning to take on a much larger role in a child's life. Disconnecting children from family at much earlier ages and for longer portions of a child's day and year. Even compulsory schooling laws are expanding in many states to begin at age five and extend to age 18. Now, she says she wrote an op-ed about this trend in Tuesday's Wall Street Journal, arguing that there are benefits to delaying early schooling for most children and potential harms with sending children to school early, such as increased ADHD diagnosis rates. And it can be worthwhile to question the default. In his book, Originals, How Nonconformists Move the World, Wharton Business School professor Adam Grant writes that a hallmark of originals and changemakers is their tendency to question and often reject societal defaults. Grant writes, justifying the default system serves a soothing function. It's an emotional painkiller. If the world is supposed to be this way, then we don't need to be dissatisfied with it. But the acquiescence also robs us of the moral outrage to stand against injustice and the creative will to consider alternative ways that the world could work. The hallmark of originality is rejecting the default and exploring whether a better option exists. Ooh, that's a great definition. Now, Carrie McDonald says better options than compulsory mass schooling do exist, and many more would be created if more parents would just challenge the default. She says we should be outraged that schooling has seized so much of childhood and adolescence, particularly when the results of all this schooling are lackluster at best and concerning at worst. We should be outraged that government schools increasingly look like prisons and that schools are being or students rather are being schooled for jobs that no longer exist. We should question whether a system in which only one quarter of high school seniors are proficient in math and only a bit over one third of them are proficient readers should be given greater influence and authority over young people's lives. She says we should really wonder if it makes sense to place our children in this swelling system, whether they are toddlers or teens. Surely, she says, we should consider alternative ways that the world could work. So what are some of these alternative ways? Well, Jessica Kohler has a great article this month at Psychology Today where she lists some of these alternatives and also explains her own journey of shifting from schooling to homeschooling her children. In addition to homeschooling, unschooling, parents can delay preschool and kindergarten Explore various co-ops and learning centers, take advantage of one of the many micro-schools that are spouting, sprouting nationwide, and explore alternative programs for teens like community college enrollment, travel, or apprenticeships. Or they can build their own alternative to school with other like-minded parents. Other options are virtual learning programs, including public ones, and nearby public charter schools or private schools that can sometimes offer flexible learning and attendance options. She says questioning the schooling default and acting upon that doubt can be difficult. It's much easier to just put your child on the school bus and be like everybody else. It's easier to go along. But, she says, it may not be better for you, your child, or the world you wish to help create. As Adam Grant says, it's the nonconformists who move the world. These originals are the ones who question the status quo, refuse to tolerate discontent, and who imagine new possibilities. Grant writes, ultimately, the people who choose to champion originality are the ones who propel us forward. They're the same. They feel the same fear. They feel the same doubt as the rest of us. What sets them apart is that they take action anyway. That's powerful. Curry McDonald says, we all care deeply about educating children to be literate, competent, inventive, 
compassionate and thoughtful. That's why she says it's time we question if compulsory mass schooling really has the ability to facilitate these outcomes for our children, for our children, <laughs> for our children and others, or whether alternatives to school might do the job better. It's time to challenge defaults. I think about what she's saying here, and, and it rings true to me. And I mean, look, I, it's been a long time since I've been, you know, a public school student. But every time this time of year rolls around, I get a whiff of, you know, the diesel from the bus exhaust. Start noticing it's a little cooler in the morning, that sort of thing. Wow. There's there's a difference. And my mind immediately shifts back to, well, I guess it's time to start getting ready for school. I don't know if you remember this. Do you remember once you graduated high school? And, and whether you went into college right away or not, but for those who maybe took some time off, the first time you did not have to go to school, either college or, or public school, didn't it seem weird to be going somewhere in the morning and realize I'm not going to school? Because it was just, it's just the, it's the default setting. It's just what we would reflexively do. And here I am 35 years after graduating high school, and I still kind of get that little flutter in my stomach when back-to-school time comes around. I don't know how to explain it. Maybe it's just nostalgia. Maybe it's just, you know, something I ate. I don't know. But I definitely have that sense of, well, it's time to go back. Now you understand, I'm not saying it's, it's a blanket bad thing. I'm just pointing out that uh, what, what Carrie, the point here that Carrie McDonald is making rings true to me. Most of us don't question, well, it's just that time of year we put the kids on the bus and that, it's done. So my question to you is, what would it take for you to, to consider alternatives? It's sad, but most of the parents I know who personally have said, you know what, we decided to consider alternatives, usually did so because there was something negative that happened that made them question whether, is this the best setting in which my child should be getting schooled? And that's sad, but at least they're, at least they're thinking about it and realizing there has to be an alternative. And I'm certainly not suggesting homeschooling is the only alternative. There are plenty of opportunities, as Carrie points out in her article. So I guess the challenge here is if you find yourself running on autopilot, switch it off once in a while. See what happens. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All right. Now I'm going to tackle textbooks. So my son is getting ready to, uh, to head back to school. He's uh, going to be attending Utah Valley University. Big, big university in uh, the corner of Utah where I live. And he's going to be taking some pretty heavy-duty courses. Among them, OCAM 
biology and so forth. And, and, and you know, the, the one that's really, you know, concerning is uh, some of these chemistry courses, because not only do you need the correct textbook, but often there's a key because there are different online resources that have to go with the textbook. And so there's a passcode that you have to have in order to, to be able to access the, the book correctly or the material. It's really quite complex. And as he found out, it is extremely expensive. Now, it's been a few years since I have been a college student and since I've had to go and buy textbooks and, you know, get ready for a new semester. But there's a lot of frustration with the textbook market where the textbooks, I mean, for, for those who don't know, you know, 300 bucks, that's a bargain for, for some textbooks. It's ridiculous. And then, of course, hey, but we'll buy it back from you at the end of the semester. Really? Yeah. You know, for 20 bucks. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad somebody made out good on that exchange. There's a terrific article by Peyton Lofton. This is on intellectual takeout. No, I take it back. This is on fee.org. My apologies. Uh, Peyton talks about how the student frustration with the flawed textbook market is justified. But he points out that students aren't going to see lower textbook prices without new innovative alternatives to the conventional textbook market. Here's how he explains it. He says, on Monday, dozens of student government executives wrote a letter urging the Department of Labor to block a merger between two giants of the textbook industry. Back in May, McGraw-Hill and Sinage announced they would be pursuing a merger. As two of the five major textbook publishers that currently have 80% of the U.S. market. This market, or this merger rather, would form the second largest textbook publisher in the U.S., Now, students are reasonably frustrated with the textbook market. They spend an average of $1,200 a year on books and access codes to online course materials. That number has risen by over 1,000% since 1977. Textbook prices are so high that students often sacrifice their grades to avoid paying them. A 2014 study from the U.S. Public Interest Research Group found nearly two-thirds of students decided against buying a textbook simply because it was too expensive. You understand what he's saying? Textbook prices are hindering the education of American students. But the students will still be stuck with high bills at the bookstore, even if that merger doesn't happen. Major textbook publishers avoid direct competition with one another by not publishing in subjects where one company has found success. So students won't see lower textbook prices without new innovative alternatives to the conventional textbook market. And it's far from a free market. Senator Dick Durbin put it best when he tweeted, We've seen what happens when there's too little competition in this industry. Prices soar, leading to more student debt. Senator Durbin's tweets indicate that textbook costs are a bipartisan concern, requiring a bipartisan solution. Here's what Senator Durbin had to say. I'm skeptical that consolidating market power in the textbook industry is in the best interest of students in the long term. We've seen what happens when there's too little competition in this industry. Prices soar, leading to more student debt. So back to the article. It says free and open markets result in high quality products and services to the consumer at a low cost. But the textbook market is one with a captive consumer base propped up by university bureaucrats and administrators. Prices run wild because students are unable to pick their textbooks. Textbook publishers are a cartel running rackets on America's students. A sales representative from a larger publisher even admitted his job is to find a way to buy off the professor. 
Now, considering the student loan debt is already at a crisis level in the U.S., with $1.5 trillion owed, students really can't afford to be further indebted by the textbook cartel. Universities and professors need to reevaluate their policies and incentives when deciding which textbooks to assign. And administrators should consider the needs of students and reject the bribes from textbook publishers. Professors, professors should be celebrated, not reprimanded, for finding less expensive textbooks to assign their classes. In order for prices to drop, the cartel's grip on students must be loosened. Now, here's what the writer suggests. Universities and students should work together to identify alternatives to the traditional textbook. Professors and universities around the country are switching to open source textbooks. Open source books are released online at no cost under a specific license that allows users to use and distribute the content as they see fit. University administrators should consider programs that make open source books accessible to professors and students. Open source solutions keep money in students' pockets. The University of Maryland's Open Source Textbook Initiative has saved students an average of $141 per course. At five courses a semester for four years, students save an average of $5,640, or nearly 20% of the average student loan debt. Now, establishing open source libraries is a daunting task, but where there's a will, or in this case an economic demand, you can believe there's a way. Universities can start by compiling what content is already available and then work with students to identify what content is still needed. They can then produce the needed content and library infrastructure using university funds or by partnering with private philanthropic organizations. For instance, the state of Washington partnered with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in 2010 to create the Washington Open Source Library. Now, the project cost $1.8 million, but it saved students $5.5 million in its first four years. Peyton Lofton points out that textbook prices are high, but preventing a merger between McGraw-Hill and Senage does nothing to address the problem. University administrators must refrain from accepting big textbooks bribes and should instead embrace the market's innovation. Open source libraries are low-cost alternatives to traditional textbooks, and students should be able to choose them. Well, there's an interesting thought. See, I might be complaining a little bit louder if I was the one funding all of my son's uh, education, but I got to hand it to him. He has done a lot to take care of this himself, for which I'm very proud of him. But I agree. If you want to see the prices come down, at some point, you have got to get the free market involved. And if that sounds like blind faith in the free market, you know what? I'm probably guilty of it. But I'm more convinced than ever. You give people the freedom to innovate without having to get permission and without having to have this official or that official sign off and tell them, yes, you may proceed. That's when you start to find the best possible solutions. And some of it's disruptive. And the bottom line is, if there's a better way of doing things, I don't think the government should be in the business of preventing that from happening. Put another way, I don't believe government should be in the business of choosing or enabling the winners and the losers in the market. 
If there's a better way to do something, then by gosh, let people figure it out and make those choices for themselves. But for some reason, that's a pretty tough sell. Well, somebody might take advantage. Yes, they might. But in a free market, someone who takes advantage and is seen as having taken advantage will quickly lose their market share because people aren't going to deal with a crook. On the other hand, when you have essentially a monopoly that prevents any newcomers from entering the market or offering any kind of innovation, how is that not taking advantage? For instance, you know, parents sending your kids off to college. Look at what your kids are going to be paying for textbooks. You don't feel taken advantage of? Please. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. We'll be back right after these messages. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, so I I mentioned in the last hour, I actually traveled to uh, southern Idaho over the weekend, spent a little bit of time with family, and actually uh, got to to run around some of my old haunts. I lived there for close to 20 years and uh, got a chance to do a little bit of fishing. And I got to tell you, the nostalgia gets gets really strong sometimes, especially this time of year. It's such a beautiful place. I don't know how to to put into words the the smell of... uh, alfalfa fields the sprinklers going at sunset uh, it's just it's an incredible thing and as i was uh, thinking about the nostalgia going past old haunts pointing things out to my kids yeah that's where i went to school and uh, that's where my first radio job was and uh, this is where we ditched the cops that time we were lighting bottle rockets and uh, almost got caught it's just i don't know that's you know misspent youth i suppose I was very, uh, very tickled to see that uh, there, there was a news story that came out over the weekend that uh, triggered even more nostalgia. And that is the Sony Walkman celebrating its 40th birthday. Because as a, uh, an adolescent of the 80s, you better believe the Walkman was a huge part of my life and my friends' lives. I mean, once, once you had a Walkman, you were set. You know, prior to that, uh, we were kind of limited to if we wanted to hear new songs. I mean, you know, people had cassette decks. You know, we had some nice, some kids had some really nice stereo systems, but you're not going to carry a stereo system around with you. And even a tape recorder, cassette recorder was clunky and uh, looked silly and it didn't sound that great. But with the Walkman, you had this little square box you could plug a cassette into, plug in some headphones, and rock out to your heart's content. The article is from France24.com, and it points out that must-have 80s gadget at one-time icon of, the, of Japan, electronics, cool, Sony's Walkman turned 40 this year. And like its now middle-aged fans, it's clinging to its youth with high-tech updates. I didn't realize it was July 1st of 1979 as the global economy suffered through the second oil shock. 
Sony unleashed on the world a dark blue brick of a machine with chunky silver buttons. It was the Walkman TPS L2. Priced at a hefty 33,000 yen, that would be about 300 bucks in today's money, the first-generation Walkman could not record, but its stereo music playback function quickly captured hearts in Japan and then the world. Now, this first Walkman sounds a lot more high-tech than what I had. I did have a Sony Walkman, but mine was not nearly this refined. The original had two headset jacks labeled Guys and Dolls that would allow two people to listen simultaneously. A bright orange hotline button could be pressed to lower the, bo- the volume while the couple chatted. After a disappointing month when only 3,000 units were sold, sales exploded to eventually hit 1.5 million worldwide for the first model. The second model, the WM2, which came in red, black, and silver, chalked up sales of 2.58 million. Now get this. Over the following four decades... Sony sold more than 420 million Walkmen. They stopped counting the number of models they'd produced when it hit the 1,000 mark about 15 years ago. And the Japanese electronics giant chose the name partly because of the popularity of Superman at the time and the fact that it was based on an existing audio recorder called the Pressman. The word Walkman has since entered everyday language, but the device was originally called Soundabout. Stowaway or freestyle in some parts of the world. 51-year-old Katsuya Kumagi is now 51 years old. He said, the Walkman is my youth, as he browsed an exhibition rather to mark the 40th anniversary of the first edition. He said, it was always in my life. Scanning some of the 230 varieties of Walkman on show, which also offered nostalgic visitors the chance to play with some of the older models. As an 11-year-old, Kumagi could never afford a Walkman, and he envied the older kids as they whizzed by on roller skates while plugged into the latest sounds. He said, I'm quite emotional. Memories from those days are flooding back, echoing the thoughts of many a middle-aged fan for whom the Walkman provided the soundtrack to their youth. Sony continued production of the cassette tape Walkman until 2010, long after the technology had been overtaken by the first compact disc in the 1980s and the mini-disc Walkman in 1992. And like many in the industry, the, the Japanese firm was shaken by the emergence of Apple's iPod when suddenly a listener's entire music collection was available on the move. But Sony has scrambled to keep up, and the latest high-end versions cost well over $2,000 and look more like a smartphone with a flash memory and high-res audio. It's a far cry from the earlier generations. Scott Fung is a 17-year-old also attending the exhibition. He's never known a time when people couldn't listen to music on the move and said he only heard about the Walkman and was just keen to satisfy his curiosity. He says, ever since I grew up, devices have always had screens. They don't have physical buttons. Clutching his smartphone and gazing at the early Walkman on display, I can imagine how primitive that must look to him. He says, when I was born, Sony Walkman was was already not as relevant. It was not really a big part of my life. Apparently, the student from Hong Kong listens to his music via his smartphone. But he said he revealed himself to be a fan of the older tech, saying, I think this older design is really intelligent, where you can just play and pause, go back and forth in a song, which is very interesting to me. It's so cool. Now, he's not alone in his penchant for the old school technology. A first edition Walkman presented as new and never sold, never used, rather, recently sold for 1.3 million yen. 40 times its original price. Sony engineer, 
Hiroaki Sato, who worked on the early Walkman edition, said it would be quite difficult to replicate the technology now as it would involve painstakingly reproducing high-precision components. He said the current versions would not likely exist in 40 years as the recording formats and rechargeable batteries would undoubtedly have changed beyond recognition. But the old Walkman has stood the test of time. He said, repairing this, I realized it's an excellent machine. If we replace the damaged rubber belt, it works normally. It's just so cool. Yep. I don't know if it makes you nostalgic. If it does, then I'll know you're, you know, probably fairly close in age to where I am. But that was uh, that was one of those great rites of passage. Like getting a driver's license, going on a first date, getting your first kiss, those kind of things. But getting my first Sony Walkman, I remember going to some electronics show where they were, uh, well, basically they were selling cheap electronics out of, uh, out of a, you know, semi-trailer. But I had that clunky, chunky, silver Walkman. The thing was built like a brick. And it went everywhere with me. From about my junior year of high school on. Actually, I think it was my sophomore year when I purchased it. But I loved that thing. And I only found out a little bit later the really fancy ones. My friends, for instance, got uh, the ones with the AM FM tuner on it, which was cool. You could, I mean, you could follow the, you know, the high school ba- championship basketball game or whatever was going on. What an interesting time. Somebody joked around once, well, I'm going to create a device that uh, you put it on and lie down on your bed and it just gives you the impression that you're up and, and walking around looking at things. I call it the listen man. <laughs> but I'm telling you, a generation with, uh, with ear damage or with hearing damage, rather, I think for a lot of us, it was, uh, it was due to our Walkman cranked up to obscenely loud levels. If it was loud enough that people across the room could hear your music blasting and tell you, turn that down even though you were wearing headphones, yeah, you were probably pushing things beyond where they should have been. On the bright side, audiologists are probably making a pretty handsome handsome living office right now. I bet the hearing aid guy is going, hey, uh, so did you have a Walkman as a kid? Yes, as a matter of fact, I did. Well, come on in. (laughs) Have a seat. Let's talk. I said, let's talk. Kind of a cool anniversary to note. 40 years of music on the go. And yet, uh, look, I'll tell you, when I travel, when I, when I go somewhere, now I've, I've graduated to the smartphone, and I put everything on, uh, on my iTunes. I don't know what it's going to be now, Apple Play or Apple something. Anyway, it's all changing too quickly, but uh, probably where one cassette would hold you know, maybe 12 songs, if you were lucky. I've got somewhere north of 1,100 songs on my smartphone. It's crazy. I can take a nice four-hour flight, five-hour flight, and never hear the same song twice. So I do appreciate where the technology has gone, but it's kind of fun to look back at where we were. And maybe for some of you, that would be reminiscing about, oh, yeah, we went down to the record store and bought the 45. And came home and put it on the hi-fi and, you know, played it uh, on on a turntable. What's crazy to me is how, you know, the more new things come around, the more we kind of want to return to our roots. 
And I have friends who are audiophiles who have actually convinced me that there are certain songs or certain types of music that sound better on vinyl, warmer, more rich on vinyl than they do in digital format. Maybe they just have the power of suggestion, but it really does sound that way to me. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. So I was part of an interesting conversation here in the last week with uh, my friend Connor Boyack from Libertas Institute. In fact, uh, there's an episode up on the societyandthestate.com website. That's our podcast. Uh, talking about being a, a prepper or actually being prepared without becoming a prepper. And there's a lot of, uh, well, there's a long time of my life where I've been, I'm a prepper, I'm a prepper, I'm a prepper. But prepper kind of has a negative connotation. At least it does to some people. They think of, well, sensationalized TV shows and people who are, you know, hoarding, you know, oodles of bullets and Band-Aids and beans and what have you. Um, I don't have a doomsday bunker, but I do believe in being prepared. And I wanted to share with you an article that I think really encapsulates the idea that being prepared is not just, you know, it's it's not a... It's not a doomsday mindset. It's just it's it's a daily habit of, of improving your position, regardless of how good or how badly things may be going. This is from Daisy Luther, who blogs under the name The Organic Prepper. And she talks about how for some people, preparedness is the big things, the well-stocked retreat home, buying another firearm, a super fancy generator. And while those things could certainly be classified as preparedness endeavors, it's not the expensive, dramatic gestures that make us truly prepared people. She says the way people spend their time before an emergency is the real key to survival. And that's something no amount of money is going to buy. It's the little daily habits that become an innate part of your everyday lives. Habits that may not even be noticeable to someone outside the lifestyle. Now, she doesn't use the word prepper in a pejorative term. She says real preppers, the ones you should look to for advice, if you happen to be new to preparedness, are the ones who quietly conduct their daily lives with an eye towards readiness. Not only are these the qualities you should strive for yourself, but they are also the qualities that can help you determine whether someone is the real deal or just an armchair survivalist. Here's a couple of examples. Prepared people think beyond plan A. The point here being anytime one disaster occurs, several others are bound to follow closely in their wake. One of the most dramatic examples was the tsunami that followed closely on the heels of the 2011 earthquake in Japan, resulting in one of the most horrific nuclear disasters in the history of the world, Fukushima. But she says it doesn't have to be on such an epic scale to qualify. No matter how excellent your survival plan is, if things go awry, you should be able to immediately accept that monkey wrench and adapt your plan to it. Prepared people understand that even the most perfect plans can go wrong, and they're willing to abandon it and act on the fluid situation at hand. Here's the second point. Prepared people react calmly. Panic is what kills So when something terrifying happens, if your reaction is to freeze or run around like a chicken with your head cut off, you're probably going to die unless Lady Luck steps in and saves you through no action of your own. Panic can show itself in two ways. 
For example, during the King Fire, the massive forest fire that burned over 97,000 acres of California wilderness, she says we witnessed some very visible panic in some of our neighbors. When we got the first evacuation alert, a notice that evacuation was highly likely within the next 24 hours, a woman who lived down the street was wailing and sobbing as her husband tried to pack up their vehicle. She was rendered absolutely useless by fear. Now, as Daisy Luther points out, alternatively, panic can manifest in the inability to act. In psychology circles, completely freezing is called tonic immobility. It's a biological impulse related to an overload of stimuli due to extreme stress. It can also show itself as an irrational sense of calmness as the brain denies the reality of a horrible event that is truly happening. In her book, The Unthinkable, Amanda Ripley wrote about the cognitive dissonance experienced by some in the World Trade Center on 9-11. She says, the story that stands out in my mind the most was the one about the people in the World Trade Center who described the last time they saw some of their co-workers. There were many people who simply could not accept the fact that a plane had crashed into the building and that they must immediately evacuate. They gathered their belongings, they tidied their desks, they finished reports. They didn't feel the same sense of urgency that those who survived did. Because the situation was so horrible, they just couldn't accept it. Their inability to accept the scope of the danger caused many of them to perish in a tragic incident that other people who acted immediately survived. Now, Daisy Luther says you can enhance this ability to accept events and act calmly by thinking through the possibilities ahead of time and considering courses of actions while your pounding heart isn't pumping vast amounts of adrenaline through your veins. Prepared people know that the ability to calmly accept the event, make a speedy plan, and then act on that plan, that's the key to survival. Number three, she says, prepared people are critical thinkers. And she says, this is an important skill. Those who passively accept everything they see on the TV news are missing the concept of propaganda. Six enormous corporations control just about everything you see on mainstream television. Through this control, They can promote their own desired agendas by putting their own spins on events. They can influence how the American people think about guns, about our nation's enemies, about the food we eat. It's vital to think about how these corporations earn money through advertising dollars. Will they really show the truth if it negatively affects their advertisers? And the same is true of nearly any situation. The truth presented is most often the truth that benefits the presenter. Prepared people are able to assess the information provided to them and distinguish between facts and manipulations. So they keep up with current events, but they strive to separate the reality of the event from the opinions of the broadcasters. Number four, she says, prepared people carry a kit with them everywhere, every day. If you don't have a basic everyday carry kit, you really can't consider yourself to be a prepared person. She says, I personally carry the basics for fire, water, and safety in my purse at all times. I also have an extensive emergency kit stashed away in my vehicle for times that I am far from home. Prepared people know that disasters usually don't give warnings, so it's necessary to have a few basics on hand at all times. And then she links some ideas to enhance day-to-day preparedness. They make great gifts, by the way. And there's an article on what gives the, the outlines the basics of an everyday carry kit. Number five, she says, prepared people are MacGyvers. People who are prepared don't solely rely on tools and preps. They rely on a mindset that allows them to create what they need from what they have on hand. Being able to work with what you have and develop solutions is a vital skill for preppers. 
And she links to some tips on enhancing your makeshift engineering skills, as well as Jim Cobb's new book, Prepper Survival Hacks, a great way to develop that mindset if you're new to that line of thinking. She says prepared people are creative problem solvers who enjoy challenges to their skills. Number six, Daisy Luther says prepared people live a skills-based lifestyle. It's not enough just to plan. You have to have the ability to execute that plan. And the only way to know that you have that ability is to make the skills a part of your day-to-day life. And she gives the example. She says, I recently moved to a farm to begin homesteading, and I discovered the hard way that my successful backyard gardens did not make me an instant self-sufficient homestead farmer. How many preppers do you know that uh, stock seeds instead of food or say, well, I'm just going to live off the land when it all hits the fan? Now, while it's entirely possible to do this successfully, it takes a lot of practice and a substantial amount of time building a foundation to make that a viable plan. But it isn't just homesteading that people must uh, mistakenly assume uh, will be an easy survival plan. If it's part of your plan, you have to work at it now. Skills like marksmanship, put some ammo downrange whenever you get a chance without fail. If you have to practice skills like hunting, so your plan might be to provide meat for your family this way. You know, you, you've got to keep your skills sharp. Prepared people practice what they plan. They focus on productive hobbies and live a skills-based lifestyle that's closely related to their crud-hitting-the-fan plan. Next, she says, prepared people are physically active. They generally work some kind of fitness into their day-to-day lives. This is where I've got to step it up. They work a physical job. They walk or jog. They go to the gym. They don't sit at a desk for eight hours, only to relocate to the couch at bedtime. She says, I teach introductory preparedness classes in my area. Every single time someone from the city tells me their plan is to hike to Lake Tahoe because of all the water there. She says, that's going to be a pain in the neck to drive there, let alone walk there. Don't let that 30 to 40 mile distance fool you. If you're hauling a 60 pound pack through the mountains, 30 miles might as well be 300, especially if it's not the kind of thing you normally do. It's just not going to be viable unless you've got your body conditioned. She says prepared people require purchases to be multi-purpose. The pantry basics that they have can be used to make cleaning supplies. So they stock things like vinegar, duct tape, baking soda, tools that are versatile instead of narrowly specialized. They're not wasteful. And probably most importantly, prepared people practice situational awareness. It's a habit that helps you instinctively assess the baseline of normal for wherever you are and in turn notice early on if something isn't right. That helps you to react more quickly if a threat occurs and often those brief seconds can be essential. I'll have a link to her article, 10 Habits, 10 Daily Habits of Prepared People. I think it's very worthwhile. I hope you find it as useful as I did. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 